Turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 8. Luke 8, we will look at verses 1 through 21 this morning. The title of our sermon is, He Who Has Ears to Hear. And our key words are soil, parable, and light. Now we begin chapter 8 this morning with a new time in Jesus' ministry. Now Luke sort of does a scene change for us here. And while Jesus is still in Galilee, that hasn't changed, Luke has made clear that we're moving on from the previous section. Now recall that Luke is not always writing chronologically, but it seems over these last few chapters that he certainly has taken on a chronological sequence to his writing. We have a lot to cover this morning, a lot of verses, so let's jump right in. Let's begin in verse 1. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the life of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their own means. Now Luke begins this section by giving us a summary of what Jesus' ministry now consists of and who the people are that are regularly found around him. Now obviously everywhere Jesus goes in Galilee, we have learned by now that a large crowd of people eventually gathers. But these individuals mentioned by Luke appear to be a regular entourage that follow Jesus wherever he is day by day. But what was Jesus doing? What was his primary ministry as he went from city to city and village to village? Luke tells us right here, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. It's very significant that Luke highlights this here. Because remember, Jesus is going town to town, village to village. He's healing people and casting out demons. He's raising people from the dead. He's literally performing one miracle after another. But when summarizing the primary ministry of Jesus and what he's doing as he goes place to place, Luke doesn't emphasize Jesus' miracles, but rather the preaching of the good news of the kingdom of God. Certainly, the physical works of Jesus were very important in validating his messiahship, in fulfilling prophecy. We've seen several places that Jesus has referred to that uh, aspect of his ministry and what he's doing, most recently when he responded to John the Baptist. But all of these things are simply signposts that are pointing to the divinity And the power of Jesus offering the supporting role. His miracles are the backdrop to what is of greatest importance. And that is namely the words that he is speaking. The word that he is proclaiming. (laughs) Now also very important and related to this aspect of Jesus' ministry. Is the primary thrust of this entire section we're going to look at this morning. It is about hearing God's word, if we hear it, what we hear, and how we hear it. This will be outlined through these 21 verses. 
And this is important because the entire Bible places a primary emphasis upon the word. Deeds are very important. How we apply God's word is very important. Obedience is crucial. But the primary emphasis is on the word. The apostle Paul, uh, excuse me, the apostle John even uses this textual motif in referring to Jesus in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. So for us, in a visually overstimulated culture where everything is judged by how great the special effects are and how fast our eyes can consume everything that's put before them, it's very important for us to recognize the incredible importance that the Bible places not on seeing, but on hearing. Not on seeing all that could be put before us, which is the very reason why sermons here are not laced with video illustrations and slideshows with pictures and props that I can pick up and show you to demonstrate my point. Because this is not God's prescribed means of gospel advancement. Never has been, never will be. It is, as we see in Jesus' primary ministry, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. It is by word. Now here Luke also identifies those individuals who are following Jesus from place to place. He puts them into two categories. First is the disciples, that are the, the 12 apostles. <coughs> Remember in Luke 6, Jesus appointed these 12 men to the office of apostle just prior to his preaching, the Sermon on the Plain. And ever since that time, these 12 have left their occupations and have followed Jesus wherever he goes. Secondly, Luke identifies a group of women. Specifically, he mentions Mary Magdalene, whom Jesus rescued from demon possession. Joanna, who... This is wonderful, who was married to a man named Chusa, who was Herod's household manager, which goes to assume that she probably was a disciple of Jesus, while her husband most likely was not. And a woman he simply identifies as Susanna, along with many others. And all of these women were focused on one thing, providing for Jesus and the 12 apostles out of their means, whatever means they had, they were providing for their needs. Now, interestingly, more than any other New Testament writer, Luke heavily emphasizes the role of women in the life and ministry of Jesus. And this is very significant in the first century as the inauguration of the kingdom of God in Christ brings with it a role and an honor that is given to women that was previously unheard of. Jesus' attitude toward women was very, very different than that of most first century rabbis. He honored them. He gave them a role within his ministry that nobody would have ever assumed previous to this. Look at verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he gave them a parable. So we have certainly come to expect at this point in Jesus's ministry that wherever he begins to teach, the apostles are there, 
This group of women is there, but also a tremendous crowd begins to gather. Now, most Bible commentators believe that this was at the absolute peak of Jesus's ministry in terms of the amount of people who were gathering to hear him. Given all that we've read time and again as the people gather, the people gather everywhere he goes. And no doubt it was a very impressive scene. But as we're going to see in this parable that Jesus is about to tell, he is not at all impressed by the large crowds. He's not really all that determined about keeping them coming to hear him. Most of the people gathering to hear from Jesus were not really interested in what he had to say. They wanted to see what he was going to do. Quite the opposite of God's prescribed means of true spiritual life. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Certainly when you're healing people, when you're casting out demons, when you're raising people from the dead, drawing a crowd is quite a simple thing to do. I guarantee you, if we made some outrageous claims that those things were going on here at Ephesus Church, that within a month or two, this place would be packed, overflowing capacity. (laughs) But Jesus shows us a very effective means of crowd control here in the parable of the sower. So as we look ahead in this parable, keep in mind the hearts of the people who were gathered around him. Verse 4 tells us that he said in a parable, beginning in verse 5, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now this has long been one of my favorite passages to help people identify what true conversion is and to discern whether or not they have undergone a false conversion. Many people who claim to be Christians and assume that they are Christians may in fact have a wrong idea about what biblical faith truly is and that they need to examine their hearts and determine whether or not they are truly in the faith. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing here as he presents this parable to a mostly unbelieving, unregenerate crowd that is gathered to hear him teach and probably more specifically to see what he might do. So Jesus tells the parable and then he gives the disciples a description of what the parable is communicating. And we're going to come back in just a moment to why Jesus is teaching in parables, as he says in verses 9 and 10. But first I want to work through these four soils that he presents and his description of what each of them is. So the first one, 
Verse 5, a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Now look down to verse 11 as he explains to all all of his 12 disciples what exactly this means. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The one along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So Jesus explains that the seed in his parable is the word of God. The soil is the hearts of men. And the sower is himself in this parable, but really anyone who is proclaiming the gospel. Now, a sower, a farmer, would walk along with a bag of seed attached to his hip and he would grab a handful of it and he would spread it out. He would simply have a throwing pattern. If you kind of think about one of those fertilizer carts that we might push along in our yard and the the fertilizer scatters. Well, he would do that in his hand as he spread the seed. So some of this seed fell along the path, the path where people would walk, where carts would go by, where horses would trot. And of course, that path was very hard. And as we think of this in light of this parable in the hearts of men, all of us at some point as Christians have experienced those with rock hard, seemingly impenetrable hearts. Perhaps some of us were there ourselves, disinterested, sometimes very hostile, We want to avoid talking to anybody who we know is going to try to have a spiritual conversation with us. And so as Jesus presents this seed, it is the word proclaimed. It has fallen along a a hard packed path and immediately it is taken away by Satan. There's no opportunity to even think of something growing in this place. You know, some people's hearts are so hardened by life that nothing of God's word stirs their hearts. Perhaps they even laugh at the word of God. Perhaps life for them is no more than a sports page, a case of beer, a fishing pole, a movie, an hour at the beauty shop, or driving around town in a fast car. And they may very well be outwardly moral, but there's no interest in God or his word whatsoever. Because life is so crowded with everything else. Some people are hardened by supposed sophistication and knowledge. If you're in our Sunday school class, this is very much where Augustine found himself assuming oneself wise, and yet, as Paul tells us, actually being a fool drinking so deeply in the world's system, worshiping man's ideas, worshiping technology, not even believing objective truth is knowable or even necessary in most instances. And so the heart is completely dulled and disinterested. And so the truth falls and it bounces along the hard path and Satan comes instantly and flies away with the seed of life. It's gone. Sometimes, sadly, never to return. And so this ground is in need of some tilling. Sometimes it is through the plow of suffering. 
This is how grace came to some of you. Difficulties, misery, completely lacking any joy or meaning in life. And then at the right time, God sent a sower once again to spread the seed and it fell on different soil. Hard hearts, and we should pray for this, need to be plowed sometimes by sorrow and disappointment so that God's word can take root. Now, I fully recognize that we do not want our family and friends to suffer, but we should want them to feel the misery of sin in their lives and be burdened by it with such a heavy weight that God brings them to their knees in repentance. And we should pray, God, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, Lord, bring them to repentance and faith. It's a good thing. And we must recognize that grace comes frequently through crisis and sorrow and suffering. But when the word falls on a hardened heart, there is no response whatsoever. It is snatched away by the devil. Secondly, we see the next type of soil in verse 6. Some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Now, skip down to verse 13 as he explains this. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. Now, growing up near the mountains in Colorado, if I ever dug a hole to plant something, I knew I was going to spend most of my time pulling out rocks and replacing it with other dirt so that something could grow in its place. We had many failed tree plantings and gardens. This is the second type of soil that Jesus describes. Hard layers of rocks that rest just under the surface. Now think of that. If you plant a seed in rocky soil, the roots cannot break through and sink deep. There's no moisture to be found. So the seed will fall. It will initially break through the ground, and you may get a small seedling, but the plant cannot grow up without growing roots, and so eventually it withers and it dies. You don't have to spend a long time within the church to see people who initially become very excited about the gospel. For whatever reason, in a moment they hear the gospel, it sounds fresh, and it seems to be a great delight to their heart. They have an emotional experience. They buy a new study Bible. They let everyone on Facebook know they became a Christian. They join four Bible studies and three small groups and attend Sunday school class and get the audio recording of the other one that they couldn't be in. And they take furious notes during sermons that they can review them several times through the week. But after a while, you begin to see that zeal wane. The excitement wears off. The conversations about biblical things begin to lessen. And the heart eventually grows cold to what only months prior seemed to set it ablaze. Eventually, being in the corporate worship with God's people drops off and we never see them again. There was an emotional high and it lasted for a short time. But they never experienced true conversion. 
Well, we certainly don't want to squash the initial joy of true salvation. It is a very joyous occasion. It is important for us to remember that genuine Christian growth and formation is a gradual, progressive process. It is church-centric. It consists of slow, long-term teaching and careful mastery of sound doctrine. And most often, this full steam ahead, zealous approach to Christianity is focused on the individual's personal subjective experience and has been promoted largely in the consumerist mentality of our day. This is the very thing that can be observed a lot of times in summer camps for students. Now, I've always enjoyed these times. I, I think that they are a great time for focused attention on spiritual matters. But inevitably, it will often lay a groundwork for students to come home and throw away their CDs and, and burn all their books and shred all of their immodest clothes and tear down their band posters And for a few weeks, they're sticking with their plan to read the Bible and to pray. But very soon after, that flame becomes a very small flicker and becomes ash. It's a personalized, experience-driven, highly energized, me and Jesus consumeristic spirituality that has many of our neighbors assuming that they're Christians when they're really not but all they had was a religious experience at a camp or a conference or a concert. And yet their interaction with the things of God is completely absent from the rest of life. These individuals need to be taught what true biblical regeneration really is. What happens when the Holy Spirit falls upon a person and transforms their heart to love and follow Jesus all the days of their life? That's what they need to know. A true Christian will endure and will be slowly but surely growing in grace and holiness as they understand more and more of the truth of God's word. That doesn't mean Christians won't have difficult seasons of spiritual dryness and unrest, but even those will eventually serve for the good of our sanctification as we persevere. Third kind of soil Jesus presents in verse 7. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And he describes in verse 14. As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. So the seed falls in soil that seems to be fertile. And it is able in some way to grow. But all around it, also growing are thorns. The seed sprouts, the roots begin to plunge into the ground. But the root of the thorn bushes and all the vines up above begin intertwining themselves with the plant and they choke it out so that it eventually dies. It doesn't get very far. Jesus says that this is the one who hears the word and receives it. And just like the last one with joy, but as circumstances of life begin to happen, job loss, kids in trouble at school, can't pay the bills, sickness and suffering. And the things that the Joneses across the street have are really, really nice. So I want to have some of that. 
And man, the river is calling me in my boat on Sunday morning. It's really important golf tournament I'm scheduled to play in. There's a big game on TV. They're having a great sale at the mall. I was up really late Saturday night. I'm just too tired to get up. I don't have time to read. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to meet with God's people during the week. And while the gospel was at one point very attractive, it loses its attraction when compared to the things of the world that are competing for attention. Everything else seems more important than God and his word and his people, his church. It was choked out by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and the fruit never matures. First John 2.15, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. James 1, 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is to keep oneself unstained from the world. And James 4, 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And you know what's so frightening about this? Often those who have been choked out by the thorns of the world still seem to find themselves every now and then among the people of God in the church. Just enough to assume that their overwhelming worldliness in life doesn't really matter. But the scriptures are very clear. To be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. Where our treasure is, our hearts will be also. And I recognize there is a lot of really great stuff out there vying for our money and our time and our attention. And those who are choked out by it all will not inherit the kingdom of God. True Christians will enjoy and use the things of the world rightly and will live open-handedly knowing that if it's all gone tomorrow, their treasure is found in Jesus alone and he is far more than enough. And Jesus goes on to explain the last type of soil in verse 8. Some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he describes in verse 15, As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. These people have a deep interest in God's word and seek to put it into practice. The seed has fallen on fertile soil. The root has grown. The plant has flourished. And it doesn't just have limbs and leaves, but it bears fruit. These are lives that are really changed and it shows as they patiently persevere. We've all recognized, if we've truly been converted, that we desire so much as new Christians to know all that we can know of the Word of God, and it's a beautiful thing. But we recognize, too, it takes time, it takes patience, it takes perseverance. This is true Christian growth. This is true sanctification. They have no expectations of instant miraculous growth. They are not impressed with all the trappings of the world, but by diligent obedience and steadily growing conviction and progress and holiness and godliness 
and growing affection for Jesus and increasing communion with God. They produce a great crop for the kingdom of God that is a hundredfold. These are true Christians, and these are the only ones in Jesus' parable who will inherit the kingdom of God. We've seen it several times in several different ways in the Gospel of Luke already, but the message has been consistent. Those who have been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit will produce a spiritual crop. There will be fruit of conversion in their life. There will be evidence of gospel transformation. You know, so often we're, we're reluctant to examine the lives of people with a righteous judgment. As Jesus explained to us several chapters ago, to make a determination that an individual has in fact proven to be an unbeliever and they are quickly withering away or they've been choked out by the cares of the world. Now, we hold out hope that just perhaps they may be disobedient for a time and truly are converted and that the Lord will discipline them and bring them back to obedience. Perhaps that's true, but eventually we have to recognize that as a result of continuing to assume that there has been true conversion when there's not, many Christians have rejected Jesus' direct command for discipline to be administered within the church. But the discipline of the church is for this very reason. Because there will very clearly be those who come in among the body of Christ, profess faith in Christ, show excitement in the things of God, have a religious high and a spiritual experience, and soon after wither and die or get choked out and find their way back into the world, the church is called to do something about that. Not just sit idly and hope that maybe, just maybe, they'll get it together. The problem, you see, is that they're not being disobedient Christians. The problem is that they were most likely never Christians in the first place. And I know it's very difficult to come to that conclusion sometimes, especially when it's someone we really love. But the evidence is very clear. Brothers and sisters, we often do more harm than good for a person when we go sometimes years saying, well, there really aren't any signs of holiness. They're not really interested in spiritual things. They don't engage in corporate worship with God's people. In fact, I don't know the last time they were even in church, but I know they're a Christian. They're just being disobedient. That person does not need to be affirmed in their false conversion. If they are a true believer in Christ... A loving rebuke will strike their heart, repentance will be wrought, and they will return to that which Christ has called his people to. And that is why we are called and why we covenant together as a church to be involved in the lives of one another, correcting each other in sin because we are our brother's keeper. So often, and particularly with parents and their children, and again, I know this is very tough, we want so desperately for our children to be saved. And I really, truly understand that. But, but telling them they're Christians, when they've gone out from everything that's true, that God has clearly laid out in his word, is doing them more harm than good. They need to be called to repentance and faith in the gospel. And the church as a whole needs to be diligent 
to engage in one-on-one correction and eventually on the corporate level to call someone to repentance. And it's really tough, but it's really important. We have to be honest and recognize the truth of the words of 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. You see, the seed will fall on rocky soil and the seed will fall among the thorns. And God has told us what we need to do when that happens because it is plain there will always be those who are falsely converted among us. So for the good of those you love, your children, your friend, your neighbor who claims to be a Christian but has no visible spiritual fruit being produced, challenge them. Call them to repentance and pray that God would really truly save them because they may have never been of us in the first place. It's a sober word, I understand, but a very necessary realization that we must come to about those who are not bearing fruit and yet claim to be a part of the body of Christ. And Jesus, in explaining all of this and saying this parable, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is really what this text and all of these various short vignettes that Luke has strung together here are all about. Jesus is saying it's not enough to simply have two ears on the side of your head. Most people have those, but there's another kind of ear that some people have, and those types of ears can truly hear. It's a spiritual ear that's linked directly to the heart. It's an ear that hears the preaching of the word and that word goes directly from the ear into the heart and it becomes more than mere words. There is a truth and the power behind that truth and the beauty that overlays that truth that these ears hear as compelling and convicting and transforming and life-giving. That's the kind of hearing that Jesus is calling for. And he simply says, if you have ears to hear these things, then you will hear them. Notice he's not trying to convince anyone that he's right about what he's saying. He's not saying, you really should really please believe what I'm trying to tell you. He simply says, if you have ears to hear it, you will hear it. And so the disciples are a bit confused by all of this. What does he mean exactly? They want to know about this strange parable and why Jesus is speaking in such odd terms. Now, in Luke's gospel, this really is the beginning of many parables that are yet to come. It was one of Jesus' favorite ways to preach and to teach, and he explains why to the disciples. Notice the sad reality of what Jesus says here. Very clearly, not everyone, in fact, most of the people present did not have ears to hear. Some understood, but most were confused and perplexed. Even the disciples were unclear of the meaning behind Jesus' words. Look at verse 9. When the disciples asked him, when, when his disciples asked him what the parable meant, and we see here he responds with a very hard saying in verse 10. He said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. 
Well, what does that mean? Isaiah chapter 6 is really a big help to us here because this is the passage that Jesus is alluding to. Remember Isaiah 6 is Isaiah's retelling of his encounter with God in the temple and the result of seeing the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and then Isaiah responds to the call of God. He tells us in verse 8, Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And then sadly, Isaiah heard the very thing that no preacher ever wants to hear from God. And the Lord said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And from there, Isaiah fulfilled his commission to blind and harden the people by clearly preaching the truth of God's word. And when they rejected the truth, he went and he preached it again, as simple and as clearly as possible. In fact, they made fun of him because what he said was so simple. And they rejected it. So Jesus is picking up on this from the ministry of Isaiah and essentially tells his disciples that the condition of one's heart determines whether or not they will have any reception of the word of God. And many of the hearers of Jesus's message that day, particularly the religious leaders, had heard straightforward teaching from Jesus that they outwardly rejected. And because of their rejection, the truth was taken away from them. This is a really sad reality when it comes to hearing the truth of God's word. And Luke records a related warning for us in verses 16 through 18. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. But nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Now the fruit of verse 15 is the light of verse 16. Jesus changes the imagery here, but the conclusion is related. Bearing good fruit means doing good deeds of faith for the glory of God. This is the inseparable link between faith and good works. Now, in Matthew 5.16, Jesus called the good, work, the good deeds light, which helps the people to see and understand and enter the kingdom of God. And the fruit of hearing of the good soil is a life of good deeds that shines in the world so that the people who are coming in may see and know the way to enter. So with all this focus on hearing the word of God, Jesus makes plain that he requires more than just listening, but he also commands that there is a way of doing. And if we consider ourselves believers, we must determine to always respond to God's truth as we read it or as we hear it. 
And an excellent spiritual discipline is to respond by setting in place action steps to apply God's truth the very day that we hear it, be it ever so small. Now, there's something else in Jesus addressing the the disciples here, and that is the supposed hiddenness of the gospel that he mentions back in verse 10. The point of Jesus's image of the light is to emphasize that it is not that they, the disciples, are to keep themselves from bold public proclamation of the word of God. It seems as though Jesus is placing a limitation on the proclaiming of the word. But here he makes plain that when your lamp is lit by the word of God and your life becomes a light of faith and joy and good works, don't hide it. There's no doubt that for a season there was a hiddenness about the truth of the gospel in Jesus's earthly life. But Jesus is telling his disciples things are changing. He had wise, sovereign purposes for concealing the mystery for a season, but that was not to be the business of the disciples. Their calling and our calling is to take what is given to us and make it known far and wide. And as Jesus proclaims in Matthew 10, what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. So in the end, the point of the parable of the sower and Jesus' explanation of the four soils is not only that your own salvation and fruitfulness hang on how you hear the word of God, but how you hear also determines the success of how the word of God spreads throughout the world. That is why verse 18 concludes with the words, take care how you hear. You see, hearing is a high calling in the Christian church because your salvation hangs on it and your fruitfulness hangs on it and the spread of the light of the world hangs on it and in the end, the glory of God hangs on it. And those who receive the truth and act upon the truth will receive more of the truth, but those who reject the truth will ultimately lose the little that they've been given. And the parables were full of truth But for truth-rejecting people, they became increasingly incomprehensible. And Jesus concludes, excuse me, Luke concludes this section, verses 19 through 21. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, and they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus' point is simple. You and I are members of Jesus' family if we hear with ears to hear and do what he commands. You see, Jesus wasn't rejecting his family here. He was simply making the important point consistent with all else that we have considered. The true family of God, those who bear fruit and shine light are those who hear the word of God and do it. Whatever the condition of our hearts, whether it be hard, shallow, infested, or good, we must listen with all that we have to God's word when it is read privately and when it is proclaimed publicly. But indeed, we cannot forget our hearing is worthless if it does not result in true action. 
attention to God's word. And I pray that all of us give our undivided attention to God's word every time it is read, every time it is preached, every time we have an opportunity to take it in and that we would seek opportunities to do so. But that attention must be coupled with a willingness to do it or the truth of it will fade away. And so has God's word impressed on you that you must forgive someone? Then do it. Has God's word impressed on you that you must confess a wrongdoing? Then do it. Has God's word impressed on you that you must speak the truth into a certain situation regardless of consequences? Then do it. Has God's word impressed on you that you must discontinue a certain sinful or unwise practice in your life? Do it. Has God's word impressed on you that you must bear witness to an acquaintance? Do it today if you can. Has God's word impressed on you that you must leave all to serve him? Then do it. Or perhaps this morning you realize that you are a soil other than the good soil. You have no roots. You're being choked out by the thorns of the world. And if God's word is impressing on you that your soul is darkened and that there is no light within you, repent of your sins and believe the gospel today. Ask God to grant you eternal life and to produce the fruit of the spirit in your life that your light can shine before men and all will give glory to God who is in heaven because of it. It's a great and sober warning that Jesus gives us with a great promise that those who are in Christ will bear great fruit for the joy of the world and for the glory of God our Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, you are abundant in mercy. You are so evidently kind to us in every way. And you love even your enemies. And Lord, we pray that as your people, that you would help us to love them in a way that calls them to understand that we would persuade them to consider the truth of your word and that in the end they might believe and trust that Jesus Christ is Lord and our only means of hope and salvation. Father, do this work that many seeds will be planted by your people and we pray that hearts are a fertile ground and that as the seed lands, that it is watered and that it receives the proper nutrients that are needed, that it will spring up and that roots will grow deep and sturdy and that branches and leaves will form that fruit might be produced a hundredfold. Make us to be a people who bears fruit and shines light that your glory will be made known to the nations and that more and more fruit producers and light shiners will be brought to a place of repentance and faith in Christ that through them 
your glory might be revealed all the more. God, do that for your sake and use us to be those people. We love you, we thank you, and we're so grateful to be a part of your kingdom and called to partner with you and one another to bring the gospel to the nations. You are kind to include us in your great work, and we thank you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.